would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Yeah, I mean, I've said for years that the greatest threat to craft beer is craft breweries. Eddie Jimmy is a craft beer industry veteran. He's damn near an expert on getting beer from the manufacturer to the asshole waiting in line to buy a can of it. You know that I'm always on the lookout for people who've been around the craft beer block and live to tell about it. And I'm fascinated to have conversations with people who are willing to disagree with me. Well, Eddie fits both of those perfectly. See, he worked at Goose Island before and after the sale that changed the world. He's been a brewery rep for both large and small players. He narrowly escaped the noose of opening his own money sinkhole. I mean brewery. He's worked at multiple distributors, including one that went out of business. He saw the inside of Sheldon Brothers during the collapse, and he managed to get the fuck out of the industry with minimal mental health issues. And through it all, he's managed to stay just a swell fucking guy. His insights and experience shed light, maybe throw a little shade, and educate and inform anyone considering a path down crappier lane. So Earthlings, please prepare yourself for my interview with Eddie Jimmy. All right, Eddie, I want to thank you for talking. Thanks for sharing. And thanks, most of all, most, most of all, for giving a long, slow, deliberate fuck about helping all my guests be better in their careers. That was my version of a welcome. Welcome, Eddie. Glad to be here. Happy to be here. (laughs) Thanks. So I'm interested in talking to you today for a variety of reasons. One is I make it my point to talk to people who know something about things that I don't. And you clearly have a side of the industry, quite a bit of experience there that I don't. You've been around many, many blocks in craft beer, maybe even a few neighborhoods. You worked at Goose before it was cool, then right before it became uncool. And then you left and came back. And so you've got a perspective on that and on the distribution side that most people I talk to don't, and I definitely don't. So I'm very excited about getting into all that. But first, tell me about who you were. Who were you when you were a kid, before you were this beer aficionado guy that uh, sells and, and distributes to everybody? Yeah, well, first, I, I, I never promise I'm good, but I do promise I'm experienced. Before I was Eddie Chimmy, I, I wasn't Chimmy, and I wasn't even Eddie. So that's <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other story. Uh, but today, I'm, I'm Eddie Chimmy, legally Eddie Anderson. But again, not not born that either. I'm just I'm just a boy born and raised in the farm fields of Ohio, just always craving to find something else in the world outside of that. Did you get the hell away from the farm fields of Ohio? I did. I you know, home's always home and and I love that and I visit frequently and it's always going to hold a special place in my heart. I wouldn't be the person I am if I hadn't grown up there, but yeah, I'm happy to be where I'm at today. Yeah, so we all come to this journey from a different place. Like what Curious, what kind of hobbies do you have as a kid? Obviously, you weren't drinking craft beer. So, uh, what is it uh, you did for fun back then? Yeah, you know, we did all the normal, what we called normal sports in rural America growing up in the late 70s and 80s. We played football, baseball, basketball, rode our bikes, collected pop bottles out of the ditches to go to the local tavern and buy candy and 
Chef Weirdy pizzas, all that fun stuff. I think maybe one of the most interesting things that some of your listeners might find interesting is that I didn't drink alcohol really until I was 21. Really? And I, I worked with some organizations teaching drug and alcohol education, K through 12, some different programming. So I was in a completely alternate world than I am today. So you didn't come to the industry because you were enamored with alcohol so much. This will be an interesting uh, twist because I definitely did. So I know many of the other people I've talked to did as well. You went to college. What did you go to college for? What were you going to be when you grew up? Gosh, which time? Uh, I went to college several times and actually ended up going back when I was 29 and finishing an adult program to get my bachelor's degree in business management. But, you know, early on, I had dreams of being anything from an archaeologist to a fourth grade teacher. That's a, that's a wide range. Well, you beat me. I didn't. I went to college. I was enrolled in college for two extremely long semesters, but it was, wasn't for me. So I did not finish and I did not go back at 29. That's tough to do. So congrats. Yeah, so, I, know, I know what I, what I did was I got started in retail. I worked at a store that sold shoes and merchandise, hats, jackets, jerseys, tees, all that kind of stuff. My first job at 14, I ran an old school elevator with a lever. So I actually had to move the lever to take people up and down a floor. And what I, what I learned was I loved people and I loved working with people and I love the idea of making people happy. And so learning, learning that is really what helped me get passionate about the beer industry. Yeah, that's a cool start. So how did you finally find beer? So at 21, you finally decided, hey, I'm legal. I'm going to start to have a drink. Were you working in the industry then? I was not. And okay. actually, I didn't like beer because all the beer I had tasted didn't taste good to me. So I drank what tasted good and growing up with a sweet tooth. Uh, meat and potatoes boy. I drank wine, Boone Farm, Wild Irish Rose, drank cocktails, Jack Daniels and sour mix, terrible sour mix that I would never drink today. But yeah, that was pretty crazy. But I, again, I was in retail and my brother and I had a retail store. We owned, it was a franchise and we sold college and professional sports merchandise. And the lease was coming up. The business was hard. People were stopping wearing hockey jerseys and starter jackets. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> MTV was stopping playing music videos of people wearing those. So the business was kind of struggling. So we decided to get out of the business. And I had a friend who worked for Woodchuck Ciders here in Indiana, actually. And he asked me to start helping him with some tasting. So I started helping out with tastings. I'm like, well, this is fun. I get to work with people and I get to drink. And he got me a job at a local wholesaler as a merchandiser back in 1999. And that's how I started in the industry. So you literally started as a merchandiser. That was going to be my next question. Obviously, you, you started off at a bigger distribution house that eventually got sold to Reyes, Monarch, I think it was. Yep. And I was curious if you came in in sales or you did it like everybody else. You come in at the ground floor and you kind of work, work your way up. Yeah, it was a combination of merchandising and working on a reset team, which we had here in Indiana. We actually went to liquor stores and took everything off the shelf, took the shelves apart, come out back, power sprayed them put them back in and put them back together again, and then reset all the product uh, based on our priorities. Yeah. So what were you selling at that point? This this is some completely curious about this. Like what brands, this is like 99, right? Or 2000? Yeah. You know, I still had Pete's Wicked Ale and, and Honey Brown that were big at that time. Of course, you know, everything with Boston Beer Company, which primarily just Sam Adams at that time. And Sierra Nevada, of course, the Miller Coors product, all the, the Corona and associated brands, Heineken, yeah, all those big boys. So, like, was there a beer back then that spoke to you, like the one that was like, you know, now it's a, there were a thousand of them, but back then you had way less choices, but was there like your beer when you, in the beginning? Well, there became one. I, I, at this, when I started, I still did not think I liked beer. Yeah. And 
Then I discovered Guinness. And I've always been a coffee drinker. I've drank coffee since I was four years old. So I love those roasty, toasty flavors. And I started drinking the snake bites, half Guinness and half cider. <laughs> and then I eventually went to straight Guinness. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know beer could taste like this. This is this is fantastic. And it really wasn't until I started working for Goose Island, which is jumping a little ahead, but that's what expanded my palate for beverages. So when you were doing sales at that point, were you would you consider yourself to be good at the job now, looking back? Yeah, I I more than satisfied the minimum requirement. It wasn't it wasn't as much sales as it was order taking and just making sure people had the quantity they needed. So we were we were doing orders on paper and then typing from the paper into old MSI machines. And then you would have to find the right payphone in your neighborhood to attach to this MSI machine. It essentially would send the order uh, almost like a fax signal and you'd have to have it in by 4 p.m. for it to, to be in for the next day's delivery. So it was always finding the right payphones in the neighborhood that would work properly with our MSI machine. That was one of the biggest anxieties I had in that role. But selling, it wasn't selling. It was just executing what was already sold. So wait, you didn't have to go in and pitch a new beer every single week to the same retailers and try to get <laughs> pre-sales and allocate it? Not only that, there wasn't a new beer every single week. <laughs> You'd have a couple of annual rollouts, some big things. And eventually you started having more the, the wine coolers, the Ricks and you know the Seagrams and Sky Blue and all this fun stuff. Zima, the original, the first time Zima came out. Yeah. And everything that came with that. Well, so do you remember, like, were there any huge releases that were, clearly they weren't all the time, but was there like somebody, and, and I'm, honestly, I can't remember back this far on top of my head, but Guinness didn't have a special beer then, right? But did somebody come out with something new or it was just super exciting and you guys killed it with it? Ah, uh, you know, from my perspective, nothing I was terribly excited about. There's things that had a lot of marketing support behind them <laughs> and, and a lot of, uh, financial incentives for the sales team to execute. So that's what I was focused on. I was focused on whatever was going to put money in my pocket, whatever the, the pay for performance priorities were. I would take care of those first. Second, I would take care of what my immediate manager needed. And then third, whoever bought me lunch or gave me a t-shirt or a hat last week was who I was taking care of. So a little foreshadowing, we're going to get into much more of the, the side of like Starlight and some of the other things later, but how much of that went away? Like in contrast the industry today versus then, are they, is that still the only thing that makes your brands work? I think at that size, wholesaler and the, and the people that are hiring for those roles, it's still happening today. Okay. And, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. It's people are doing what impacts their paycheck. Now, some of the smaller wholesalers are different because you're working for passion. You're not working just for the money. Yeah. And we're going to get into some of the uh, limitations those guys have later. But one quick question there. So, uh, again, kind of foreshadowing the third section, but um, what were the resources like different there versus like Starlight? Was it just deep pockets and you guys had everything you could need to sell the beer and move the beer? Yeah, every everything from the POS department, you know, all the all the, the cardboard cutouts and uh, pennant strings and blinky buttons and beads. And yeah, every, every more than you could possibly use. Yeah, which obviously helps quite a bit on that side. So, quick question: I am curious. We're, we're going to talk about your career here in a minute, like all the different places you've worked. You've been on multiple sides of the industry, except for production. So, I'm curious: Did you ever dream of opening a brewery and/or owning anything on the production side? Yeah, you know, I was. I did have brief experiences with production, but it was never a part of my job. So I was pretty lucky that I never had to do it for a living. Uh, but I did spend eight years planning my own brewery. 
And the, the smartest thing I ever did was not open my damn brewery. Wow. I didn't know that part. So there's a surprise. But what, uh, let's just go right into that. What, why did you not open, first of all? Well, I spent, like I said, eight years planning. I acquired quite a bit of equipment. I think I was about $15,000 in on equipment. I spent more money than I should have on trademarking. I actually was, was working on trademarking my name before I got into any legal issues <laughs> instead of waiting for something to arise. So I spent a few grand on that, and I was working on a farmhouse brewery. It was going to be 100% spontaneously fermented. I had a couple of great partners lined up, and the state EPA told me I would need a $110,000 wastewater system for a business plan that had me maxing out at 200 barrels a year. And I'm not real, real good at math, but that math didn't work. Yeah, so that's interesting. So you, you dodged a big bullet. Do you wish, do you ever wish that you had done it? Sometimes, sure. There's those daydreams and the passion that I have for that category. But from a financial perspective, I'm extremely glad it didn't happen for me. A couple of the guys I was going to work with went on. They opened their own brewery uh, and they're doing a fantastic job. They're nailing it. I'll, I'll do everything I can to support them. And they're doing it. But for what I wanted to do, you know, on the farm, yeah, no, I'm glad it didn't happen. Yeah, that's a struggle. There are guys that have made that work, but I would argue that they are against all odds, at least domestically. Um, some of the ones maybe outside the country are doing better, but it's uh, it's a tough spot to be in. It is. So let's go back to Monarch for a second. I wanted to ask you, um, how did the retailer account compare? So this is one of those questions that, and I honestly didn't sell beer back in the early 2000s, but it felt like to me there would have been way less outlets. Not to say that the job was easier, but in a sense that you had less people you had to follow up with, the, the route was maybe shorter, maybe you had less people because of it, but was was it easier to, to hit the accounts you had to hit in a way? I, I don't know that it was easier to hit the accounts. The the selling certainly changed, you know, in, in the craft beer category, but we were in the mass-produced beer, you know, the, most of the Miller products and Coors products. That was all pretty simple. It, you know, it was turnkey. Anyone could come in, almost anyone could come in and just do the job. You just follow the route. You have a sales history of what they've been buying. It didn't deviate much. You just made sure they had inventory. You made sure it was rotated and you kept the, the quality dates in check. And, and that was it. It just wasn't that difficult. Less complex and more straightforward. I, yeah. My personal opinion, and since you've been on the other side, which we'll get to in a minute, do you think that's a more profitable model for distribution? It's, it's certainly more simple. And, and we have a more simple model and you can align your resources there's certainly the capability of being more profitable. You didn't need to hire educated people. You didn't need to hire passionate people. You just need to hire people that would go out and do it. Yeah, put on the back brace and move the stuff from point A to point B. Yeah. Yeah, less training. All right, last question before the break. If today Eddie could go back in time and buy a beer for young Eddie, two questions. A, what beer would you buy him? And B, what advice did he need to hear from you? Oh, wow. Well, I, I certainly... I certainly would expose him. I don't know that there's one bear there. I would say there's three bears. One is Orval. He needs to try Orval. He needs to understand the complexity of what a beer can be. Two is a, a Sam Smith Nut Brown. Yeah. And three is is any of the fantastic goozes that are available from Belgium. So when did uh, young Eddie finally get a chance to try one of these fantastic goozes that are from Belgium? Do you recall your first after one? Yeah, it was during my time at Goose Island, and Greg and John and the team there had done a fantastic job of developing Belgian-style beers in their portfolio and exploring the beers within our portfolio. They also did a, a great job of exposing us to to the beers that inspired 
them mm. and where their beers came from. And so it was important to them that we, we tried competitive beers here in the U.S., but also the inspirational beers from Europe. And when I had the opportunity to try that for the first time, I, it, it just blew my mind. I didn't understand how that could be beer. Did you like it and, from the very first sip? Yeah, I liked it, but I, I didn't think it was beer. It's not yeah. what I thought of as beer, but I did like the, the, the liquid. I liked, I liked what I was smelling and tasting. And particularly smelling, I felt like I could just sit there with my nose in that glass for a very long time. And I find myself doing that now when I pour one. I sit and just smell it until until I have to go in for a taste. Yeah, no, I, I I had the same exact experience when I first tasted it. I was just like, well, I'm done. This is this is the beer forever. And it didn't always work that way. I still drink other things, but that was definitely an eye opening experience. So, what was the advice that young Eddie needed? Oh man, he needed to to learn to not stress out over anything and anything? to to <laughs> anything, not to stress out over anything, and to to learn to take more chances earlier in life. All right. Bigger risks, shoot for the fences. Yep. All right. So let's take a quick break and we come back. I think it's time that we talk about this Goose Island thing we've been skirting around. So uh, let's take a quick break and we'll come right back and we'll get back into that. Shot. So, hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. All right, so welcome back. Let's get into this story about Goose Island specifically, where you fit in there. So in my opinion, you saw something very special just from the perspective that you were were there in the beginning, you were there after, and that's something that I haven't been able to talk to anybody that really did. And so... What was it like working there before the sale, you know, the one that people, many people claim killed craft beer? It was absolutely incredible. We had an amazing team of people. We were all passionate. We were all authentic. We knew we were having a lot of fun. I, I don't know if I realized how special it was at the time and the moment, but I knew it was awesome. And I knew we were having a great time. And I thought I thought I was going to be a lifer there. I thought, this is it. This is, I found my calling. I found the right company, the right people. And this is where I'm going to spend my career. What was it that made it feel so special? Was it just like, like a tie to the art? Was it that they gave a shit about their employees in a way that people didn't that you'd experienced before? Or what, what do you mean? Elaborate a little bit. Well, they certainly provided us resources to improve professionally and, and personally. So they provided us training opportunities and they provided us opportunities to work together as a team to regularly meet in Chicago at at the motherland and uh, experience that together to be part of decision-making processes. We certainly didn't make the decisions, but our influence was asked for and appreciated. So whenever we were talking about new brands or, or brand imagery changes, we were always consulted and we were allowed to, to provide our opinion. And then the powers would, would make the ultimate decision and move forward. But we really felt like we were all in it together. And again, it's the amazing group of people that we had. 
just the fantastic personalities that all fit together like a zipper. And we picked each other up when we needed picked up. We shared best practices and we worked really well together. Right, and you handled what, uh, Indiana sales? Is that kind of? Oh, well, initially when I started, I was just doing the state of Indiana and Louisville, Kentucky. And then I ended up before the sale advancing to a regional sales director covering Ohio, Kentucky, Indiana, Michigan with a four person team underneath me. And then uh, in 2011, fucking shit hit the fan or however you want to claim it, right? They sold out. Did you see that coming at all out of curiosity? Was it was that on the table in a sense? Like because that was sort of the first big one outside of like Pete's Wicked, which we mentioned earlier, but. Sort of the first one in the t- chain of you know, sellouts from that point forward. Yeah, I certainly did not see AB InBev purchasing Goose Island. I did not see that. I think myself and a, and a couple other team members saw that there were some changes that were going to come. And there may potentially be another investor come in. And that didn't really happen until maybe six to eight weeks before the transaction happened. But we were working in partnership with the CBA at the time, the Craft Brew Alliance, the Widmer, Red Hook, Kona. And so we... We were having regular meetings with them. We were helping to represent their brands on the streets here in the Midwest, and they were helping to represent our brands outside of where we had people on the street. And so that would have been a natural progression. And I think that's where we felt like it was going to go. And it's where it was going (laughs) until, until it wasn't. And that basically was the day before the transaction. Uh, I think even the CBA people were coming to welcome us to the family until they got phone calls to stand down because another deal was being made. Presumably a better one, I would assume. But yeah, so obviously the big question that, that somebody needs to ask you, so I'll just I'll do it for everybody. How long after that could you taste sold out in the beer? Oh wow, I think I think it was a long time in the beer. I, I think it was after I left before we tasted it in the beer. As you see with most buyouts of, in any industry, you, you always get this speech for a while, like nothing's going to change, right? Yeah. <laughs> nothing's going to change. Every Everyone's jobs are protected. Everything's going to stay the same. And then it always changes. But it doesn't happen immediately. It was probably a year or two later before, you know, I saw things happening in beer production that, that changed the liquid. But it was the following November when some of us were invited to the Anheuser-Busch National Convention in Dallas and sitting in there and listening to some of the comments and listening to Brito talk and some things he said, that's when I knew I... I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I was out. You know, when he, when he stood in front of 20,000 plus wholesaler representatives and told them that craft was overrated, it was a fad, and they needed to go back and tell their retailers to stop giving space to craft after he just brought us in. After I'm investing like, wow. in craft, yeah. Yeah, I don't think I don't think our visions are aligned. Okay. So, did you like pre- so you you left well, kind of a year later, but you went to an, another part of AB InBev. But one question I had is, did you find it harder to sell the beer to the market post-transaction? Or did that take a while? Because obviously now you walk in with Goose Island and people have probably somewhat laid down uh, to an extent. But there are definitely bars and restaurants around the country that won't sell it. I've interviewed them on this show. Because it's owned by AB InBev, they're not into it. And so was that, was that immediate that the market said, fuck you, I don't want sold out beer anymore? Or did it take some time? I think there's a small percentage of retailers that had that attitude immediately. And honestly, I think there's a small percentage of retailers that have that attitude today. Mm-hmm. In general, it was easier. It made it easier to sell. So, you know, being a brewery representative 
for a, a distributing brewery, part of your job is calling on key accounts and finding those key retail relationships. Another part is wholesaler management and managing the wholesaler. And I can tell you that when we became part of Anheuser-Busch, we were a much higher priority for those wholesalers. Yeah, so that made it that made it easier. I'm sure you're immediately in the cold box sets and, and stuff like that. It just it was an easier conversation to have for sure. Yeah, totally. So why did you leave? Ultimately, when you left Goose, you you parlayed that into I think AB's craft division. Well, what what happened was, like I said, after that convention in Dallas, that's when I emotionally pulled away, but I hadn't done it professionally yet. <laughs> and so I was kind of waiting, where do I go? I thought this was going to be my retirement job. Where do I go? Who do I know? And like I said, we had been working in partnership with the CBA and they approached me about an opportunity in, in the market where I lived, wouldn't have to move to work with their brands. I knew their brand. I knew their people. I knew their system. And so I took a job with them and helped launch Kona in a couple of states. And that was, it was fantastic. It was a great learning experience. And the, the people there at CBA were great. And it's really interesting. Everyone treated them at the time like they were part of Anheuser-Busch. And no, no one except outsiders treated them like they were Anheuser-Busch. The, the <laughs> AB team did not treat us like we were AB. And the wholesalers did not treat us like we were AB. They were honestly making independent decisions and independent brewing decisions. There was just a financial portion that was related to AB. But otherwise, we were, we were, we were that redheaded stepchild. Yeah, literally just kind of sign an investment on paper, more or less. And so it didn't really get all the advantages. Yeah. Now, what did happen, and with the deal that Anheuser-Busch made to buy out Goose Island, at that time, CBA already owned a portion of Goose Island. So they got those shares bought out. And that helped fund their purchase of Kona Brewing Company, which completely changed the CBA's growth model and blew them up the way they were successful with Kona Brewing. Yeah, it gave them some fuel for the fire right when it kind of helped. Like at that point, it was a good good time to grow. May, may not have helped yeah. so much today. <laughs> well, now they are AB, but yeah. that, that's, a, that's a change. <laughs> so then after that, you came back to Goose. And this is a part where I'm curious. Obviously, you left for principled reasons. You lost sort of that enamored part of what the... What what Goose stood for for you internally, but you came back as what vintage market development manager, which I'm curious if that means what I think it means, first of all, but what were you doing? Yeah, it is primarily focused on the high end beers in their portfolio. So the Belgian style beer. All the 750s basically. Seven, what were they, 737s or something crazy? Or 757s? They weren't 750s. They were 765s. They were 765s, I think. <laughs> so they had a proprietary bottle. Oh, of course. And, you know, there's a lot of the things I liked about coming back. First of all, the, the, the pay was better, the benefits were better. There was increase in training. So there was a lot more support and the focus for the Venti jails was beer and food. And I was, I was passionate and interested in that category. And so it was all about bringing beer back to the dining table instead of being disrespected by wine and saying only wine belongs here. No, shit, beer belongs here. Let's bring the beer back to the dining table. And that's what we were doing. So it was easy to be passionate about that regardless of the ownership. Yeah, did, did the reputation in the market affect you on that side at all? I would think most of those people didn't care. Yeah, most of those people didn't care. The reputation really wasn't an issue except in a select number of accounts. It was more the challenge of meeting expectations for the new companies, new company, and also the pricing strategy was different. And, and the increase in pricing made it a little more challenging. I completely bought into bringing beer back to the dining table, but that didn't mean that beer needed to be line priced with 
some of the best wine out there. Yeah, right. Although some of they had some $25 bottles that at least I saw at uh, retail. So they, they had some stuff that was sort of at the time, especially out, way overpriced from the beer market. Not not yeah. unfairly overpriced, but just overpriced. Well, that's what I'm saying. And it made it hard to turn volume. Yeah. So at this point, you're in the Indiana market. You know the market. You've been there for a while. You're out selling beer door to door to these different places. And did you run across the Starlight guys at that point? They opened in like 20, 2011. So were they your competitors in the market? No, at that time, when I was the vintage rep for Goose, I was in Ohio. And oh, okay. I was only doing the, the Ohio market. So I was not aware of of Tim or anyone on the Starlight team at that time. Okay. And so the the next few years, you had kind of a little run around. So we're going to do a lightning round. So you, you left Goose again. Why did you, I guess, I'm actually curious why you left the second time based on why you left the first time. Well, the reason I left Goose the second time is I was working on my own brewery and oh, okay. I went and got some, some permits. And there is specific language in the, the hiring documents with Anheuser-Busch about conflicts of interest. And I did not want to get any legal issues with them. And so I went and said, hey, I, I have to leave for this reason. Here's what I'm going to do. They were extremely supportive and agreed, but also agreed I needed to go <laughs> and left from there. And then the, the next jobs I took, they, they completely were aware of what I was working on on my own. And I was able to do it at the same time. Okay. And that was like just a small brewery there in, in uh, Indiana, right? I'm sorry, what's that? You worked, a, it was, you left and went to a small brewery after that in Indiana for a while, right, while oh, you work on the brewery? And I actually, well, I worked for Upland Brewery for a yeah. while, covering Louisville and Cincinnati. I worked for Warped Wing out of Dayton, Ohio, and launched their brands in Columbus, Ohio. And then I ended up going to Nashville, Tennessee, when I decided my brewery wasn't going to work <laughs> and worked with, worked with some people down there. And you had a moment with the shoots, right? Like, yeah, I lost them in Ohio and Kentucky. Yeah, and they were amazing company, fantastic beers. There is nothing negative I could say about them as a company or their products or their people. They were fantastic. It was just a, a lot of work, and I wasn't able to. I didn't have the time to work on my own project while I was doing that job. Yeah, and you worked for them back in like the Chainbreaker days, right? Like that was yeah. that beer yeah. killed it in Texas. It was everywhere when they had that one out. Yeah, some keychains. I can send you one. <laughs> it was it was great. It's actually one of my favorite Deschutes beers for sure. I would think so. Contrast that for a second. Like, what was that like going from like corporate to independent to corporate to independent? Like, did was it just a massive kind of like concept shift constantly and and do you did you like one versus the other i guess would be an interesting question too no it, it wasn't as different as people would think it is it's it's not you still had your job to do and working for some of the smaller companies i worked for well the guy that hired me at upland also hired me at goose island so oh. he hired me twice at goose island and then he hired me at upland so it, it was it was the same same strategy the same thing we were, we were trying to replicate it and and do the same thing so it wasn't really wasn't any different. What was different was the resources and the training. And I've always defended the big brewers. And it's interesting how they've caught so much flack for, for doing illegal things. And yes, they do some lobbying that can be characterized as shady, but they're also businesses and they're using their resources to, to protect their businesses and grow their businesses. The smaller breweries do the same thing. It's just a different scale. It's a different decimal point. And yeah. I've seen more illegal activity out of small breweries than I ever saw out of the large companies. Well, especially out of desperation. Like I, I saw Carbock doing stuff here in Texas that was, you know, way worse than AB did, and it was before they got bought out. And so maybe you can make the argument that they tried to make the same culture so they could get bought out. I don't think so. They they were they were willing to cross those lines and do those things that were not strictly legal before they ever crossed the line of being uh, 
AB. Well, and I honestly believe some of that's sheer ignorance. Like they didn't know what the laws were. Mm. When you you work for the big guys, you know what the laws are. We had class. You had to go through the classes. You had to pass a test. You had to sign that you understood them. <laughs> you know, we we did sexual harassment training. You know, way before the Me Too movement and and some of the other terrible things that have come to light in the craft beer industry. Like they they were teaching and training on those subjects. And the smaller companies weren't. I mean, they didn't have the resources to. And and so they they priorities were in different places. When you get to be a certain size company, protecting yourself from an HR perspective becomes more important and training from a sales development perspective becomes more important. And so they spend the money to do that. Yeah, makes sense. So a quick question about the the mantra one. And this, I researched this one because you told me that you had worked in some of these places and I'm completely, I don't know what the best word is, I guess, interested, flabbergasted, fascinated. I'm not sure what's going on here. This is a brewery that did three different brands three different personalities inside of one kind of parent company with a 60 barrel brew house in a different state. I mean, I can't, I don't know what's going on here. I'm curious how they made this work because this is a uniquely strange situation. I I can't tell you what's happening with them today. And and, and I can't tell you not because I won't, but because I literally don't know. (laughs) I, I think, you know, they were in the process of opening a new facility when I left. I know that facility is open and I think they're operating just as that venue the venue is what's keeping them afloat right now. From the craft beer world perspective, they're basically non-existent now. Yeah. And so their their models changed a lot from what we were trying to build when I was there. But that concept was interesting. And I'm just curious what your thought process is on having different brands for different personalities inside the same parent company. Do you think that was a good idea? And I don't mean to like have you bash them. I'm just curious if I'm not seeing something. And is that, was there a logical reason for that that might've made some financial sense or they just artistically did it because they thought it was cool? No, I think, I mean, I helped in part of that process. I think it was an amazing idea and it it came down to the the lack of execution. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one thing I like to talk to smaller companies about is smaller companies don't have the money to hire all these business consultants and do all these focus groups like the big companies do. But you know what? You don't have to. All you have to do is look and see what the big big companies are doing copy that. and then replicate it <laughs> on your scale, right? You saw bigger companies putting out more tap rooms. Well, obviously, tap rooms are working. Okay, well, can you do that on your scale? Can you replicate your tap rooms and get more revenue in? And many of the, many companies have, and they've been successful at it. And look at look at a company become a beverage company, right? So Miller, Coors, Anheuser Busch, any of those guys, they have lots of different personalities and and brands in their portfolio. They weren't just selling one beer and one personality. So it's the same thing. It's just replicating it to scale. Yeah. That is, for me on the outside, having built a, a brewery and considered doing that exact same thing, it just, it seemed like you would have to spend three times the money to market it, three times the effort to get, like, as opposed to just driving home one brand personality constantly. And then this is within that. It just, they didn't have like a, there was no parent company really in a sense that sort of drove it all, I guess. But I don't know. That's I mean, look at Boston Beer Company, right? Boston Beer Company didn't isn't where they are because of Boston Lager. Yeah, it's because of the success they have with Twisted Tea. And now it's seltzer, apparently. So. And now it's seltzer. <laughs> so they're literally doing the exact same thing on a different scale. The difference is they're executing, yeah. and they've made it work. And they had the distribution network that they're sort of laying new products throughout that, and you kind of got you know push pull through and push through initially, which does help too. Yeah, uh, I mean, you got this brew house that's sitting there, and if if you're if You've got open time and open space. And if you're maxed out at what you can sell with one brand, 
then create a different brand. Yeah. Well, so on that same topic, the that brewery is now really spending a lot of effort on contract brewing because they have this 60 barrel brew house that is not producing near enough beer. And I interviewed a guy from Connecticut that from Hanging Hills, uh, and Joe's doing all contract brewing now. He had a facility, he closed the facility, he went contract. And I I'm interested. I'm going to at some point interview a uh, lender and we're going to talk about which business plans make the most sense. I think financially that contract brewing makes a ton of sense. And I'm just curious from your perspective, from the distribution side, especially, is that harder to sell? Does that make any difference to you? What what are your thoughts on contract brewing? If you do it right, it's amazing. Call up Isaac at Octopi and talk to him. (laughs) and see what they've been able to accomplish. And as a distributor, it it was fantastic to to work with them from their facility and get, you know, five, six different brands coming out of the same production facility that you knew the quality was there, the packaging was there, you're picking up from one spot. So from freight and logistics perspective, it made life a lot easier. And it's 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 great. It's great when, when you do it well. All right. Well, I think there's more profitability there too, because you don't wind up with a bunch of payroll and excess capacity. It just it, If you're a contractor working at, through another brewery, I think there's a lot of opportunity for success. And I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about digging into that in some future episodes. So. Yeah, 100%. All right. So... You have obviously experienced the explosion of craft beer through a multitude of different roles, which, again, I think gives you a unique perspective. One of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the show is to really chat about kind of what went down with Starlight and what I think that that means for the future of our industry, which, uh, spoiler alert, I don't think is good. But uh, Starlight was an independent kind of boutique distribution house, started back in 2011, like a husband and wife, I think, and just of that network of distro that made the Shelton model work. What, what am I missing? What was their claim to fame in the early 2000s? Yeah, I mean, they, you know, Tim and Stacy took a chance and they, they put their money where their mouth is. They loved good beer and they wanted more great beer to the market. You think it's hard. I mean, it's always been hard, I guess, to get distribution for your brand. It's hard today. It was hard then. But there were a lot of brands that didn't have a path forward to this market. And the Shelton portfolio specifically had pulled out of Indiana. They did not want to work with any of the current wholesalers that were in the state of Indiana. And Tim ran into to Dan one day at a, a festival over in Belgium and said, hey, I could sell your beer. <laughs> and, and it all just kind of happened from there. And Tim and Stacey started Starlight and brought Shelton back at the time. The Shelton portfolio was sought after and had a, a high consumer demand. And that gave them some immediate success. And they were able to grow their Starlight portfolio on top of that success. And they hired a couple of great people that went out and knew the market and knew the, the brands and knew everything that they carried and did a fantastic job executing it. Yeah. And, and I think that that model for sure, like especially when I started trying to expand outside the state, one of the, I actually hooked up with a buddy who was in the Shelton portfolio and kind of looked at the distributors that they worked with and the relationships that worked for them. And it just, the more of them I researched and the more you looked around the country, a lot of what I thought of as the craft beer revolution were those small houses and were those uh, brands that didn't have the marketing money. They spent it on art and they, they spent it on like how to make the best possible product at all costs. You can argue all day long it's a bad business model, but and maybe it was. But at the end of the day, it made cool shit come to the market, which is what the whole point was. So I always thought it was a cool model and I was, I was sad that it struggled when it did, but you came on the Starlight scene in 18? When, when I left Tennessee and came back to Indiana and through my connections, I'd met Tim and, and Tim and I knew each other. We weren't close, but we knew each other. And then I knew the team at Shelton Brothers and Shelton Brothers saw 
my social media posts that I was going back to Indiana and they were trying to make some things happen and grow their distribution network and get more on the distribution ownership side. So they contacted me and said, Hey, do you have anything lined up? Would, would you like to talk? Like, I would love to talk to you guys because I have nothing but respect for you and your portfolio and would love to figure out what we can, what we can work out together. And it was refreshing to deal with brands that, no, we don't have tap handles. Yeah. No, we don't have stickers. <laughs> no, we don't have glassware. No, we don't have t-shirts. You know, we have, we have amazing beer and here, here's how we can get it to you. And that was a refreshing place to be. Uh, it wasn't my most lucrative position in employment, but it was very rewarding personally and very proud to, to represent that portfolio and all, the entire portfolio that Starlight had. And the issue came prior to me joining the team, Starlight had had a flood at their warehouse mm. and had wiped out their inventory and they didn't have adequate insurance to cover the losses. And so they were they were in a little bit of a hole with the company when I came on board and we just were not able to dig out of that hole. Yeah, that was one of my big questions is what was the big hairy goal right out of the gates? Like we need Eddie to do what? And what, what were you kind of taxed with doing at that point in 2018 when you came on? Yeah, survive, right? <laughs> to not, not be in the red, to, to sell enough to, to cover the expenses. You know, initially the plan was for Shelton Brothers to come in and to take over. Shelton was going to be 50% owner and I was going to be 50% owner in equity. But they were going to put more money in. But then they ran into other struggles on their own, including the lawsuit in Chicago that prevented them from taking those steps forward. So then we were just limping along until, you know, and I think we, we were still bleeding some money and, and Tim and Stacy were, were still in it. They, they were believing. They wanted to keep going until I realized that I, I couldn't keep going anymore because I came in at a reduced compensation with the dream of equity mm-hmm. until I realized that, you know, the equity, when there wasn't any value in the company, the equity didn't mean anything. Right. In, in some ways, it almost be a negative. So. Yeah, mathematically. So, yeah, well, let, let's get into more of that. I'm going to take a quick break, but I really want to hear a little bit more about kind of how that process worked through Star, Starlight. Um, full disclosure, obviously, we hooked up at this point, and you guys started distributing some of our beers for a little while. And so I'm curious to hear, you know, from your perspective, what was going on during this time when I got to see from the outside. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You got a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, so we're back. Let's talk about uh, Starlight. We talked about... Shelton kind of coming in was going to sort of fix it, reinvest in it and, and move it forward. One of the questions I want to ask you is, so you, you came in there like in 2018 and I over and over will tell you that I believe that that is either the year or the year after craft beer died for a variety of reasons and a variety of metrics that I'm using to, to make that statement. I didn't just make that up. We haven't had the funeral yet, but I'm about to send the invitations out and I'll let you know and you'll get one. Had, had they seen 
a drop in sales previous to the flood or was it like running hard and then and the reason I say that is I saw a bunch of guys struggling at this point and I had to assume that they were too. Yeah, I think in 2019, I started seeing a drop in demand for some of those beers. You know, there were a lot of things happening at the time when you had the, the, the hazy world really starting and that storm coming on board. And it really changed the consumer demand. And I think, man, it's hard. I, I certainly never want to throw stones because I've I've been at all different points as a consumer. You know, I've, I've paid way too much for some beers. I've traded <laughs> for beers. I've traveled for beers. I've sold beers. I've done it all. And uh, I'm not doing it, it, most of those things today. And, and, and it just all changed. And people were chasing, you know, it's a $24 four pack of a hazy IPA that had to be drank within two weeks mm-hmm. instead of these amazing beers that we're, we were bringing over from Europe. I had arguably some of the best beer in the world in our portfolio at Starlight that I would have to beg people to buy. That was an awakening for me. That's when I knew something was changing in the industry. Yeah. So we could we can talk for days about this probably, but let's what about the format? So obviously in Texas, I think you told me something happened in Indiana too, like 750 just died. Like our chains yeah. ripped them out. The biggest sales grocery store in Texas, I think, has 19 bombers in the shelf. And they're the obvious choices, but they're gone. So how much did that hurt some of those brands that you imported? Yeah, I mean, it was everything because that's the only packaging you had. You, you were either 750s, you were bombers, or, you know, four-pack or, or six-pack, 12-ounce, 330 milliliters, whatever they happen to be. As the consumer preference switched to cans, and we only had those products in, in bottles, that made it harder. But it wasn't just that. I mean, we had brands like Omnipolo that we were getting in cans that were amazing beers, and just people stopped wanting those. And not because the beers got worse, the beers actually got better. The, the branding and the marketing got better. But the consumer preference shifted all the way around. So bottles were a, a, certainly a, a real part of it, but it's more than that. It was just the consumer trends towards what was what was fresh and what was rare, and they only wanted what was rare. Well, and it's interesting, too, because Omnipolo makes, and, and this is my opinion, just to clarify, but it's my podcast, they make the same shit these people are buying. They make these, like, smoothie, milkshake, diabetes things, and they still didn't move? I'm actually surprised. We don't get them here in Texas, and so I didn't know. But Yeah, I mean, they were making some of those big fruit beers before a lot of American breweries were, or before it became in, in vogue here in, in the craft beer world, for sure. Yeah. One thing that I saw, especially here and in some of the other markets we were in, is that the kind of bastardization of the term sour also hurt a lot of that. So you had like Cantillon technically in on the shelf was referred to as a sour and so was a Berliner Weiss with nine and a half pounds of raspberries in it. And that really, I think, fucked the consumer mindset up where the value was wrong, right? So that, that can of Berliner Weiss is... Maybe it's six bucks, but the Cantillon bottles twenty four. How much of that do you think made a difference in in your market? Yeah, I mean we bastardized styles completely, and it, you know there's a reason styles were created because then it was easier to educate, it was easier to guide people, it was easier for people to find what they liked and what they enjoyed. And you know I think that the part that's not talked about often is the point you brought up is the 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 cost and the value of a style name, and that completely got just thrown to the wolves had a huge impact i believe yeah unfortunately that some of the best brands in the world just got left behind and it just it just doesn't make sense to me so it sucks so what did you target like what were your change points when you took over and said okay we got to fix this here's the did you make a list of the four things you had to do or like you know the the, the five mistakes they made the year before you were going to fix like yeah you know it really 
it was no grand plan, any amazing insight that I had. It was tightening up inventory, having the right amount of inventory, trying to pre-sell as much as possible, not have products sitting around and, and finding the right retail location and then doing everything we could with our limited resources to let consumers know what was in the market. So using various Facebook groups and beer trading forums to say, hey, we now have Villa Finn in Indiana. Go get it at these locations. Yeah, it's just, just trying to keep keep stuff coming in and moving out. Imports, exports, baby. <laughs> if it sits on the dock, it costs you money. So in my book, I actually made a, a formula for how to kind of value a distributor and from you know how to decide whether they were the right fit for you and what your brand wanted to do. A couple of things that I missed on that and simply because distribution is not my game. Uh, one was depth of drop and then revenue per account. And so what I mean by that is depth of drop is, you know, you, you see the guys that are making the money in the distribution side are the ones delivering uh, pallets. They'll back up the truck and pull four fucking pallets out. How did, how does a small guy deal with that? Like, how do you try to like make it so that you've got it the ability to do a deep drop um, with unique and interesting brands that need education. Yeah. One of the things I used to say frequently was, was our goal was to profitably sell as much beer as we could to as few customers as possible. <laughs> and that's exactly what we were looking. We we're looking at efficiency of deliveries. And so it's, it's really finding those, those accounts, finding those right accounts those accounts that could make a difference. And we found some of those. I found some of those during my time at Starlight that Starlight had not been working with in the past. One of them turned out to be, you know, was our number two uh, dollar buying account at the time we closed. And they weren't even a customer when I started. And it all comes down to, to the people on the floor for those accounts or behind the bar. Like those individuals made all the difference in the world. Because as a distributor, we had to hand sell those brands we needed retailers that would also hand sell those brands. And that was becoming harder to find. But when we found when we found the retailers that would hand sell it, they knocked the socks off of it. So it was becoming harder to find, do you think, because the retailers just weren't investing in education for their people or because the people, the employees just weren't giving a shit? I mean, I, I think the many of the retailers weren't looking for that kind of customer and they weren't mm. looking for that kind of experience. They wanted to buy what they could put on the shelf that would just sell on its own. They didn't see the value or sometimes don't see the value in having an educated, trained staff to sell more. They just want to bring in what's easy. You just bring it in, you put it on, you sell, you hire the cheapest person you can get to keep the lights on and, and run the cash register and move on. Yeah, maybe you're at 22% margin, but you're doing more volume and ultimately you make more money. Not, yeah, as, for not, sure. as, not as fun, but it's a business, right? <laughs> so, right, yeah, it. it's a business at the end of the day. <laughs> so then the other metric that I was I had kind of talked about later was revenue per account per week. And this, this is one that I don't think a lot of crap guys really talk about, but more the question of like the distributors that I talk to that are the big guys, they will just sit there and invest in a tap handle that they know does well at a place over and over and over. Like, was that a metric that you guys used out of curiosity? Because I feel like you've got to have flagships in place to really do that. And I don't know that Starlight had big flagships or at least. Yeah, no, we didn't have flagships. But we did. I did look at during my time at Starlight and afterwards at Craft Roads at the revenue per drop. You know, mm -hmm. how, how many dollars we're bringing in per delivery. And that was an important metric that, that I believed in. And we, we had some incredible numbers in that category that most beer distributors would be shocked by. Uh, but the other piece of that is, 
you know, I, I started charging deposits for tap handle. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's always one that's uh, hotly debated. I've seen people do it, and I've seen people complain about it. Yeah, and I, I certainly wasn't the first one. I didn't come up with the idea, but I helped execute it in this market and was one of the leaders in this market. And it really made sense when we explained it to people. We're like, you know, in, in the days when I started in the early 2000s, we would sell in a draft line. That draft line would be there three to six months. And so you give them a tap handle, you're selling, you know, eight to, to 20 kegs of something. You've made the money to pay for the tap handle. But in today's world, they're buying one six barrel at a time. So they buy one six barrel, you pay the salesperson to sell it, you pay the delivery person to deliver it, give them a tap handle, and then they don't put it on again. You don't get the tap handle back. Well, you've lost money on that sale. That transaction's a negative for you. Yeah. And so when you explain it to most business people, completely understand that and they get it. And and that made a difference. Glassware too. I sold glassware. I sold it for what our cost was. It didn't didn't mark it up. But you know, we can't afford to give you the glassware. Well, you know, Monarch gives us glassware. Okay, what size check did you cut the Monarch? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> If it's, you cut that size check to me, I'll give you a case of glassware. <laughs> we'll make it work. I promise. Yeah. No, people have a hard time seeing that for sure. Let's talk a little more of the flagship side because this is one thing that I think most Shelton distributors just never really agreed on with me. But I fundamentally believe that without a flagship, you work twice as hard to make, if you're lucky, the same amount of money. But why, why is that? The, the Shelton model just never really supported having a flagship. I think the flagship, not not just in the Shelton model, but just in the craft beer world, became the brewery, not a brand. So you'd sell so the, the same, or a different keg from the same brewery week to week. Yeah, or you're selling Founder, you're selling Bells, you're selling New Belgium, you're selling Sierra Nevada. You're not selling Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, you're selling Sierra Nevada. Well, we saw in Texas, and I don't think there's more competition, but maybe there was, you couldn't even get to that point because there just weren't enough retailers or weren't enough tap handles. So you'd be on like a, at best six to eight week rotation. And some of these guys just couldn't make money doing it. I, I just don't, I don't see how that works, you know, to send in something new all the time. But all right. well, we certainly could uh, debate whether it's been healthy for the industry. <laughs> I think the initial economics aren't as, as negative as you might think, but long term, I think there's a definite danger. Yeah, what I'm sure you saw from the distribution side, one of the things that I had a conversation with the distributor once because we were all in the, we were an all seasonal model, and so we would send in certain things. And I had told them, I was like, well, the, I understand that the way that it works is if I send you ten kegs and you don't sell three of them, you made no money. And he looked at me with a blank stare, and I was like, wait, do you not understand that? <laughs> And I was like, oh shit, this is not going to end well for me. And so, uh, yeah, it's not everyone kind of gets that. Yeah, for sure. And that ended up happening a lot. And that, that was our biggest challenge. We'd take pre-orders, you know, say we get pre-orders for something for seven cases. We'd order 10 to fill out a layer to make it easier. And then those last two or three cases, we just couldn't get rid of. And we would do everything we could until we just had to discount them to the point that it was below cost. We were discontinuing mm. it. And again, we didn't we didn't make money on that whole thing. So we were able to really start analyzing that data and try to try to order appropriately. You had two years of a runway, and what what did that dec- like decline look like? like? At some point, obviously, you you kept going. You were running. Did you hit like a peak and then come back down, or did you just consistently grow and it never quite hit the level that it needed to to sustain itself? That's Starlight. Yeah. I think in 19, we were we were still growing uh, the current brands we had. Things were looking pretty good. And I'm like, okay, things, things are looking all right here. <laughs> we're we're going to make this work. And then we saw demand shift from the brands we were bringing in 
to you know the the new category, the, the hazy, juicy pastry category that we played we played in, and we had some of those, but not enough of the ones that everyone was chasing after. And so we saw a slight decline there for sure. And then we could have fought through that. And I think there's a place for that size distributor in, in probably almost every market. But what we needed was capital because by that point we had me, a driver, and a salesperson for the entire state of Indiana. That was it. So we couldn't possibly get to all the opportunities. We couldn't possibly execute at the, at the level, even the potential that was out there. We were limited by our own resources. Yeah. So if you'd had the capital, you would have what invested in additional trucks and people? Yeah. Two to three more salespeople and, and another driver or, you know, our driver wasn't, he wasn't full time. So he wasn't delivering every day. So it would have been figuring out a way to, to make that driver full time and having two to three more salespeople out there, which still would be way, way tiny in the David against the big Goliath out there. But that would have been enough to allow us to continue to grow and keep the cash flow growing. Cash flow is king. That's still only like one salesperson per city in a sense, right? Big city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So about the same time when you guys went out of business, you guys did a lot of like kind of co-shipping and they, they were also a Shelton brand or Shelton distributor house was Dauntless. You guys both kind of went out at the same time, it sounds like, right? Yeah, for di- for different reasons. And, you know, they grew much larger and had more success than, than Starlight was able to get to. But yeah, we think it was less than two years after Starlight was gone when when Dauntless went away. I know in Texas the the boutique guys are just struggling hard, and they and they have been for years. It's a really capital intensive business, tough to raise capital. Texas is a franchise state, so you can't just go yeah. take brands that are good. Like they're fucking stuck with the other guy. You got to buy the whole distributor house. But do you think that that kind of like showcases a, a movement across the country that m- maybe those those brands are still struggling, I guess, in a sense, like the small guys? Yeah, from my perspective, what has to happen is the breweries need to be responsible for selling their beer. They need to create the consumer demand. They need to do it through marketing, through the liquid, through the, the branding, through the pricing model. They need to make it so people want their beer. And the distributor is essentially FedEx or Amazon. They're, they're delivering from point A or B or A to B. And what they are doing is they're identifying the top opportunity accounts and making sure that people are well-educated and know what's available and know what's coming. So that's an important part of it, but they don't control consumer demand. Consumer demand has to be driven by the supplier. So do you think that there's a a fair margin then? Let's talk about both sides of that. And I definitely worked with some of the smaller guys that just did stupidly high margins. And then I worked with guy like Progressive in Florida that was so tight that I was concerned. I told him like, dude, you need to bump these up because I'm, you're not going to want to sell my product over somebody else's. These are too tight. It was like 27% or something like that. But there's also was favorite brands in Houston that we got in an argument because they were charging 40%. Holy shit. And I had one dude in San Antonio that was just gouging the market at double. He was literally doubling the keg price on seasonals because he felt like it was too much of a pain in the ass. Is there a right number then? So if the brewery's got to invest in marketing and advertising, maybe they're spending more on branding through a a branding company to remarket the labels or whatever. Where do you think the fair point of that margin comes in? Yeah, well, I'm a big fan of blended margin. So I I don't like, you know, overanalyzing every individual product and draft versus packages. What what can you make on a brand? Of course, figuring the, the landed cost. 
by the time I pay the taxes and the freight, what does it cost me? That's that's the real margin. Um, and I think one of the things that can make it easier for suppliers is actually figuring out their pricing and doing a blended margin. You know, if a brewery's giving me a couple different categories of beer and they're giving me eight different price points, it's like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> like, figure this shit out. You got this keg that's a dollar more than the other keg. Make them the same price. Make them the higher price. I don't care, but make it as simple as possible. Line price it, uh, have some different pricing tiers that you fit within. And then as a distributor, we should do the same thing. We should create those price tiers. Now, one thing I learned early on my time at Goose Island, and I, I think it's applied everywhere I've worked, is we don't start the pricing model based on the cost of production. We start the pricing model based off what the consumer will pay. Where the volume needs to so, be, the price point, yeah. Yeah, you know what the consumer is going to pay, then you know what the retailer needs to pay. Now that you know that what the retailer is going to pay, now you need, you know what the wholesaler is going to pay. And then from there, you can figure out what the manufacturer can charge for it. Yeah, and then find a way to make money. <laughs> yeah, Unfo- yeah. Unfortunately, there were a lot of guys I know of, particularly in Texas, that did it that way and never found a way... I don't know if they went far enough because I actually would then go back and have this conversation and they would find out that they were not making any money at all because they did not find a way to make it profitable at the price that they could sell it. Right. But then maybe they shouldn't have been in the distribution game. They weren't ready for that. They probably shouldn't have been in business completely, Eddie. (laughs) Well, that's a different story. But yeah. (laughs) But I mean, you can be you can be profitable as the local brew pub. You can be profitable as the tap room in a neighborhood and not be profitable in distribution. Yeah, especially now it's even gotten more and more tight. Where it just you can't—it's so hard hard to do the volume without the buybacks or the samplings on site. It's just yeah. uh, distribution's a bitch these days. Well, I mean, the retailers make the most money. The wholesalers make a less am- lesser amount, and the suppliers make an even smaller amount. And then the only people that make a lot of money is the gray market. Well, as long as somebody does. So, w- looking back, you ran out of time, right? You couldn't get the cash. Shelton walks away. What's the biggest regret that you had for those two years? Like, what do you wish that you could have done differently? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I did everything I could with the resources I had. Yeah. Um, so I wish I could have more resources. I, if we had had more resources, we, we, could have, we could have done a lot of things differently. And, you know, when I left there and went to Craftworks, we did have more resources. And I was able to bring most of the brands that were in the Starlight portfolio over to Craft Roads and implement a lot of the strategies and philosophies that I had. And, and it worked. Yeah. When we could buy inventory, when we had salespeople, not just salespeople, but fantastic salespeople that, that were there when I got there. So I wasn't responsible for them. <laughs> they were amazing and wasn't able to provide them uh, the development that they deserved, but they were able to keep rocking it on their own. And all I was doing was getting them the beer, getting them the portfolio. And, and they rocked it and they grew it. And then we added fantastic people that I was a part of adding and continued to grow it. So you moved to that job almost immediately. Did we, you not burned out a little bit and like needed a break from the Starlight thing? No, it was, it was immediately. I, I think I went to Belgium for five or six days. Did you? Well, that's good enough. That'll be all you need. Yeah, yeah. And came back and that was it. I wasn't burned out on the business. I wasn't burned out on what we could do. I just needed resources. And, you know, I was contacting people to try to figure out a way to save Starlight. I was trying to find someone that would put money in. And one of the people I'd gone to, or one of the groups I'd gone to was Craft Roads. And Mm. so they had called me back in, in October. um, And I'm like, great. We found someone that, that sees the viability here. They're going to invest in it. But instead of that, they offered me an opportunity to come on as sales manager. And I was like, well, shit. <laughs> what At this what point, do I do now? Sure, yeah. And so I went to the, the Shelton Festival in Buffalo and, and talked to the Shelton team there. And I'm like, look, I, I don't know how to say no to this. I've got, got two young kids and I'm not getting younger. Like, 
is there is there a path forward? Can can you tell me if there's a path forward? And there wasn't one. So came back and talked to Tim and Stacy, and yeah, and that was pretty much it within a few weeks. So that was going to be a switch, right? So it may I don't understand this, but it, Craft Roads is a twelve percent company, right? So you had different brands, or did you get to sell some of the same brands? So we had a several um, several suppliers at Starlight. We had. You know, we had 12% and Shelton and Prairie and Untitled Art, uh, more. And so I was able to bring all of those over to Craft Roads. Craft Roads already had Avery, Anderson Valley, Topline Goliath, Melvin, Single Cut. There were several brands that they had in their portfolio before I got there. I was able to add some existing brands in the market into their portfolio and then continue to add to their portfolio until my departure. This is going to be a little bit of a speculation, but I'm curious, so 12% still around, what do you think they did differently than Shelton to not have collapsed during the time that, like you said, the industry kind of turned away from artistic cool imports? Yeah, I, I mean, 12% went heavier on domestic. They also did something that, in my opinion, was fantastic and smart. They opened a production facility where they could contract brews, some of those American domestic brands. And again, just like we talked about any of the contract brewing, it's having those resources all right there, keeping the quality level high and having one ship point, which was huge. Well, they didn't have to ship from all over, yeah, or even internationally at that point if they could brew some of that stuff. So that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's take a quick break and we come back. I do need you to talk a little bit of shit, Eddie. So we're going to talk about the market, <laughs> the overall industry, and uh, one last segment, and then I got to get you out of here. Do you guys remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and then send it to your house in some book large enough to knock someone the hell out? That's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. So the industry can be so much better by just being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simpler to use, and one of those how in the hell do we ever get along without it products. For less than the case of beer a month, you'll get real-time fermentation feedback on current gravity, temperature, and even clarity. If anything is slowing down or out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever the hell gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving the quality of the beer off your list, and get back to figuring out how on earth to be profitable in your beer business. Drop your mash paddle, go to AccuBrew.io, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. All right, so I want your opinion on the beer industry overall. But first, I want you to share a little advice. So much of my audience is either a past, current, or future brewery owner. And so I want you to speak directly to them for just a second. If they're looking to work with a small distro like Starlight or um, one of the other guys that you've worked with, what advice would you give them? If they're going to make that call, for example, to to talk to somebody there, what should they do first? Don't call. (laughs) Just don't call. Just Self-distribute in your home market. Distribute as much as you can out of your tap room or your brew pub and forget about distribution until this whole thing shakes out. What do you, what do you mean by that? And I, we're going to talk about what I think shakes out looks like a little bit later. But for shakes out for you, what does that mean? Like less breweries, less retailer, whatever, more retailers? Here's the thing. I, I talked to a lot of breweries over the last year, two years that would call and they would say, we're doing something no one else is doing. We're super unique. You need this product. <laughs> Guess what? You're not. You're not doing something no one else is doing. Well, we can offer you this and no one else is offering this. No, that's not true. Get outside of your bubble. See what's happening out in the world. You are doing nothing unique. So get that figurehead. Look in the mirror. Tell yourself you're not special. 
you are not special. <laughs> now, can you execute what you're doing? Sure. And if you're calling me and if I'm, if I'm a person that's making a decision to bring new brands in the portfolio, uh, I'm going to ask, well, what, what have you, what do you have for results? Do you have chain commitments? And those could be anything from national chains like Kroger or, you know, regional chains like Meyer, or it could be, uh, here in Indiana, liquor store chains, because we're, we're still the only state, we're the only state left that regulates beer sales by temperature. You can only buy cold beer in liquor stores. You can't hmm. buy cold beer in grocery convenience or grocery. All right. Yeah, I said that already. But yeah, so liquor stores only can sell cold beer. So have you talked to any of those people? Is there a reason that people would buy your beer on the streets here out of the store? Because we have a crowded portfolio. Look at the shelf. Where do you fit in and what makes you stand out? Do you have a point of relevance and or a point of difference? I'm going to argue almost no one has a point of difference because there's someone out there doing it. But you can have a point of relevance. Like, do you have family members from this area? Did you go to college here? Do you have a friend that owns six bars in the area? Is there a reason that you can say these beers are going to sell right away? Then I'll list. Then it makes sense. Otherwise, oh, great. You're bringing me a kettle sour. You're bringing me a, a fruit bomb. You're bringing me a pastry sour. Guess what? So is every other brewery in our portfolio. And they're doing it cheaper than what you're going to sell it to me for. And I'm ordering in higher volume and I save on shipping because the freight cost per unit is one of the biggest issues right now. Yeah, I couldn't even imagine. I, I luckily got out of the freight business right before COVID, but it's just, I mean, it's gone crazy. Yeah. And, that, and that's why we like some of those, those co-packers because they can add some brand new breweries into their portfolio and I can get 10, 20 cases but I'm combining it with everything else I'm picking up there. So it makes sense. I know that was a big thing that Shelton had too in the beginning. I, I actually talked to International in Louisiana and, and they were like, why can't you just go with Shelton? Because we can. that's what they could do. And they were like, we like that better. It's easier. I was like, well, because Shelton's not going to last. And then two years later, they went out of business. So whatever. But Yeah. I mean, you guys are faced with you were shipping it from Texas to the East Coast and then all over the country. So now you're paying double freight. Yeah. Um, and I think I think price sensitivity is going to be more important in the craft beer world in the next few years as well. It's going to have to. There's just too many options out there. One of the things, I, it's something I hear all the time and it drives me absolutely fucking batshit crazy. And it's people will, who are modicum successful or successful on paper will say things like, well, you know, my distribution relationships are great. All you have to do is you set KPIs with your distributor and then you have regular meetings with them to make sure they're aligned with your vision. Now, you just literally want to punch these people in the face because that, that's what we say. But when the rubber hits the road, that doesn't mean anything. Like it, like you said, I think the message is you have to be able to give me a product that almost has a demand in the market already or clearly has a market, demand in the market. I don't know what, what you would say. At least some demand. It has to have some. And so for me, the KPI following up on like, oh, hey, here's our goal for the year. I have had distributors sit in those meetings with me every six months and I mean, nothing changes. They, they don't walk out of the meeting, go to the fucking loading dock and tell the guy, Hey, make sure you put two more cases a week on the truck. I mean, it's never happened to me. So I, I don't understand how that works. And so my question would be, A, do you agree there's some truth to them and some of that statement? Like what works for suppliers in the distribution relationship to make sure they get the headspace outside of creating demand themselves? Or is there anything in those relationships that work outside, I guess, other than paying for it? Yeah, it's, it's building a relationship with the salespeople, right? Having share of mind with them and getting them emotionally connected. I've always believed, and, and I probably will always believe, that if you can get the salespeople to your facility, they become more emotionally invested. They also want to sell for people they like. So if, if they like you, they want to sell your, your, your beer. If they don't like you, they don't want to sell your beer. 
That's probably one of my problems is I'm not very likable, Eddie. Yeah, in today's world, you don't have to sell beer for people you don't like. Like, you just don't have to. Like, yeah. there's there's too many other options. You're not forced. As a small distributor, you're not forced into those relationships. As a large distributor, you can not like the AV guy, not like the Miller gal, and you still have to sell the product. Yeah, well, the retailer is going to demand choice. it too, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's just not there. So it's it's finding a way. If it's local, it's easier because you could spend time with those people. You can you can schedule work with where you're out there and they hear you talk about your brand. They hear the passion. They hear the, the talk track that you're using in the market. And it just makes a big difference versus dropping in from six states away, not spending any time in that market, scheduling you know, an annual and then quarterly meetings with the brand management and sales management team. So what? Nothing's going to happen from that. They're going to chase where the volume goes. So again, the, the volume is driven by consumer demand. So if you want to make the biggest difference, focus on consumer demand and not on distribution push because push doesn't sell the beer. Pool does. Now you have to be there. You have to be on the shelf to be available, but you still have to have demand to pull it off. We can sell anything once. <laughs> and we've got a lot of, you know, in this market, you know, when I was working for the distributor, we had a lot of retailers that would buy anything from us one time. And if it sold, they would reorder. And if it didn't sell, they would. So that's, that's the bottleneck. The bottleneck is with the consumer, not with the distributor. Yeah, because even when it comes to developing relationships with the salespeople, we have such fucking turnover in this industry that I would do that all the time. And then I'd go back, you know, three to four months later, sometimes six, depending on the distributor, and it'd be all new faces. Like, I'd make new friends again. I'm like, oh, this is exhausting. I can't handle this. But that's the game. It is so exhausting. It needs, it needs to be quarterly checkups minimum with those salespeople and, and developing relationships, which is one of the reasons that the incentives work, the contests work, because you don't have to be there. You just pay the guy to give a shit, whatever. But if you're doing distribution, you, you, you have to invest in people on the street. Mm -hmm. You have to have someone on the street representing your brewery. If you don't have that, if you can't invest in that, then don't be there. Yeah. So that changed, right? So the beginning, that was Shelton's whole thing is they were bringing guys to market that didn't have that. Guys and girls, we should clarify. Yeah, yeah. But now with the competition, I would agree that that's changed. So one of the things I was going to say, I mentioned earlier that I feel like craft beer died. For me, it happened right around 5,000 breweries. So around 18, maybe 17, uh, when we had that many breweries in the United States, Shelton Brothers had hung on for a few years after that, but they finally kicked the bucket in like 1920. For me, that that is a message overall to the industry that some of the reason guys like us started is gone. And maybe not you because you weren't drinking, but I got started in this industry because I loved <laughs> imports. Like I was originally just totally into the beer itself, particularly Belgians. And so I was like, oh, I want to make these cool artistic beers. I never got in the industry because I drank fizzy yellow water. But anyways, what do you think that says about Shelton Brothers going out, what does that say about the overall craft beer industry in your opinion? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it was necessarily any fault of their own. I mean, it's easy looking back and you can see some some mistakes they may have made from from business decision standpoint, but that's not what changed the industry. What changed was the consumer demand. Mm -hmm. That's what changed. And that wasn't Shelton's fault. They're not responsible for that. I think what you have to adapt and, and unfortunately, these days you have to adapt much quicker than, than you, you had to in the past. You know, I just left the industry at the end of February. So I've seen over the last six months, year, an increase in demand in classic styles and in imports. It's still a low volume, but the demand is increasing. And there's old timers like, like us that have been in the industry for a long time. And we've, we've gone up and down the hills. We hit every corner of the, the beer world and we're coming back to classic styles. You know, I want I want a fantastic dunkel. Mm -hmm. You know, I want a great brown ale. I, I don't want the adjuncts. I don't care about the barrels. Like, I, if I can walk someplace and get a British mild, 
that's that's proper. That's what I want. I want to drink that all day. I would agree. And I think there's a huge contingent of people in the industry that agree as well. For me, just looking at the macro side of it, I think the problem becomes there's too fucking many breweries. And so like we're at 9,000 now. We're on a trajectory to probably hit 11,000. What do you think there's any innovation that we can expect between 9,000 and 11? Is there some great new thing coming that's going to like re-energize the industry? No, I, I don't think we have that. And I also don't think we have too many breweries. I, I think we have too many breweries distributing. Right. There's still a lot of neighborhoods that don't have a brewery. I don't have a brewery on my side of Metro Indianapolis. Inside the circle we do, and we've got some amazing ones. But outside the circle, there isn't one. So these neighborhoods could have one. But they're not going to do distribution. Distribution isn't going to work. But no, we can add another 2,000 breweries if they're just neighborhood breweries doing good, solid beers. I want the old brew pub days. Like I said, I want to go in and get a brown ale and an oatmeal style and English bitter, but maybe there's not enough of me. Yeah, well, and I think we get to a point, too, where I think America has a lot of bars, too, in some of these cities. And so there is more, maybe some more competition. And like people always use Europe as a model, right? In Europe, you know, there's... A brewery on every corner. Germany has a, a brewery in every like small county or whatever. But do you know how many breweries are in this country of Belgium? Oh, no. It's not really a trick question. I was just curious. But <laughs> in all of Belgium, there's only 380. And so if you think yeah. about like the proliferance of how many of them are distributing to the United States and like how many could we name that, and, and you've obviously been there and I haven't, but you know, I think we have this perception that there are a lot more breweries than there are. In all of Europe combined, there's only 11,000. And they have double the population that we do. So I think we're in a situation that we need to hang on to this fucking record growth. Like we've got to stop growing so quickly because there's there's not room for all of them. And a lot of these guys are only hanging on because of distro. Distro is going to have to die. Maybe they go back to the brew pub model, but they're going to have to really up their game because I think brew pub is almost harder than distribution for a lot of people to do well. Yeah, I mean, I've said for years that the greatest threat to craft beer is craft breweries. And I stand by that, and it, I think it's been proven out. Yeah, I still I still think we could have more breweries that are doing it right, but you're not going to get innovation, but you can get increased execution. I think having a return to some standardized style guidelines, uh, not to squash innovation, but just to help with education. We need more consumer education. We need more people to understand what off-flavors are. You know, I've seen in my career, people brag about their beer tasting like buttered popcorn. Yeah. And like it was a good thing. You know, we've, we've seen all this happen and that has to change for the health of the industry. And, and also the threat of seltzers. You know, the seltzers were a Trojan horse for the spirits, spirit companies. You know, they come in, they took more share. It's all about market share. When you get to that big point, it's, it's, it's all market share. So they, they're grabbing some beer market share into the seltzer category, which a lot of those were malt based. And now they're moving them over to RTD cocktails and moving them to the spirits. And then guess, guess where they're going to go from there? They're going to go to the bottles of spirits. And they were doing it before. I mean, you had whipped cream vodka, birthday cake vodka before you had beer go completely insane with cereal flavors. So they kind of led the way and they kind of guided drinkers down that path because they taught them, oh, you can make it taste like whatever you want. Beer should be able to do that too. If not, you shouldn't be drinking beer. So beer's like, oh, crap, we'll play that game. We can do that too. And that's where we're at. And then it just continues to build. Well, hope, hopefully we've got some like reprieve going forward because the other part too is that you talk about market share. Like we, we literally are still at 13% market share in beer particularly, which is just atrocious. You know, we, 
we've basically hung on to there while we've gone from 1500 breweries up to 9,000 and there's just not room. There's not enough market share per brewery at this point. So maybe. I mean, I think one of the biggest threats we haven't talked about either is the better for you category. So mm. from non-alcoholic beers to kombuchas to, to, to sparkling waters, we're seeing a health conscious shift in our society. It's still a, a small percentage overall, but it's a growing percentage and it's a pretty healthy percentage, no pun intended. Uh, but I think that's, that's a threat for the beer world as well. I think I don't worry about it as much because nobody I know drinks that shit, but apparently it, uh, it is growing. So you have to take advantage of that. It's growing. We even have had a dry bar open here in Indianapolis uh, this winter. A whole bar dedicated to non-alcohol? Correct. That's interesting. I have not heard this phenomenon at this time. Yeah, it's been on the coast for a bit, but it's finally moving inland. Mm, great. <laughs> oh, that's not it. That's not doesn't make me happy. Let's do something that does make me happy. Let's talk shit about Untapped. Jesus so, fucking Christ. <laughs> <laughs> so, when you were in Belgium recently, did you log every single beer that you drank on Untapped? Uh, I think I've logged a total of seventeen check-ins on Untapped. Really, congratulations! You, do, you get a ba- do you get a badge for that? Like for like not logging that in? No, I don't even have it on my phone now, or I would look it up. But yeah, it's you know, I think Untapped had the potential, has the potential to be valuable for the industry, but the way they've managed it has definitely made it dangerous for the industry and, and the detriment. What do you mean? Well, if I could change it, I would do two things. I would give me the ability to keep my ratings private. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to. I, I have, yeah, I have too many friends in the industry. I'll, you know, I'll be honest with them one-on-one, but I don't want to say something negative about a beer I've had publicly for people to see. And then secondly, I, I think they should allow you to do two different ratings. They should allow you to do a rating by style and then a rating by personal preference. Mm-hmm. Because I can rate an IPA, a West Coast IPA for the style, and that'll be a completely different rating than if I personally enjoy it. Yeah, well, and not so many people don't even give a shit, and they're if they don't like the taste of something that's in it, they'll just rate it half a cap or whatever their stupid rating system is, which doesn't. Yeah, help well, you wouldn't you wouldn't have to do both categories. You could just do one, but I think then you could filter the people that have done both, and I think it would give you a different data set that would be a little 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 more intelligent. I've always thought one of the stupidest things too is they keep the aggregate scores, even though they won't let you view going back more than like two years or however many check-ins it is, you can have your aggregate score for 10 years worth of data that they won't share with you. And if the, you know, most breweries are evolving through time, there should be more of a snapshot of today than there is a snapshot of 20 years ago. What the fuck's the point of that? How's that helping anybody? Agreed. hundred percent. But they won't, they won't dump those things. And so I found that out because I tried to go back. One of the beers that I had the early check-ins were hilarious, and I wanted to copy some and share them. And I couldn't get to them anymore. I'm like, but those ratings were still bringing the total. To- That's stupid to me. Well, they certainly contributed to the downfall. They've contributed to the ADD and to the the chasing of beers. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was their intention. At least I have no reason to believe that was their intention. But it certainly led to that. It was clear in the beginning that they did things intentionally to make a hype community because that was what drove business. I mean, you know, same sure. thing as like Facebook, you're doing algorithms to try to get engagement. I mean, yeah, I don't know that they thought the end game on it, but, and I'm sure there's no way they expected it to blow up the way that it did because nobody predicted the growth of craft that I talked to as much as it did. So there's that too. We knew it was Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's been really interesting to see the slowdown of 
beer advocate and people using beer advocate and the changes with rate beer and of course the sale of rate beer and everyone was all in uproar and now everyone's still proud to display when they win the rate beer award. So stupid. It's, you know, and getting into the Brewers Association, if you want to talk some crap, the Brewers Association has always been just about their organization's self-survival, not about what's good for their members. Yeah, well, I was on the Brewbound podcast, and I, one of the things that I had mentioned was like, it. I get, I will give them the one thing. It's very hard for that organization to currently say that times are tough when they're making more money than they ever have right now. So sure. they're not really a snapshot of the health of the industry. They're a snapshot of the health of their nonprofit. Or if, I don't even know they are. Are they nonprofit? I don't even know. Ooh, we should do some research. A little background yeah, music. That, yeah, that'd be good to know. <laughs> but so, did you ever use Beer Advocate back in the day? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was fantastic for, I used it more for a resource. So less yeah. than, than me personally rating, but for me to learn more about beers that I was going to try. You know, growing up in Ohio and, and being in Ohio during most of my career, one of my favorite retailers was the Winking Lizard. And they always had an amazing selection, you know, 100 different beers you could go get, at minimum 100 different beers you could go get at any point and try. And so, and they were allowed to do carry out. So I literally would go in and I would, pick out every Hefeweizen on their menu, one <laughs> bottle of each Hefeweizen, buy it, take a home. And then I would take a home, I'd put it in the fridge. The next day, I would open them all up beside each other, smell, taste, compare to develop my palate and to increase my knowledge. And I would use Beer Advocate to see how other people had described these beers and how they had rated them and, and looking at the ones that were gold standard for the category. And I, I was just talking to a guy the other day, the, the old days of Beer Advocate, where you were trading shelf beers for shelf beers. Yeah, they also right. Did shelf beers from the Midwest for shelf beers from the West Coast. That was amazing. I missed that. That was that was the most fun part of the industry, and for me, broadening my horizons with beer. So I wasn't trying to get you know Cable Car Creek. I was trying to get some random brown ale for some brewery in San Diego, just to taste it for the experience. And it's like, yeah, it was. It didn't have to be something that you could Instagram, which is a little different. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And yeah, and even the whole rate beer thing and the way people blasted them when they sold and thought that, you know, MBEV was purchasing them to change ratings, which was absolutely ridiculous. You know, it's pretty obvious that they they wanted the data. They got the data. Mm -hmm. And what that data showed them was consumer trends. And it, the further out you can see consumer trends, especially as a big ship, the better position you're in to make adjustments to your portfolio and use that information wisely. Yeah. Or, or market things in a way that would take over, but that's a, <laughs> yeah, no, no, a hundred percent. You're right. All right. So you left the industry kind of, I would, I would argue that I don't know if you've totally left the industry, but you've left the front lines maybe of the, the sales and distribution part of the industry. What happens? You get burned out, you get kicked out. Like what, what, what happened? Yeah. You know, n n none of those things, uh, there were probably some people that would have liked to kick me out, but no, I, I did, definitely did not get burned out. I just, where I was, I wasn't being compensated properly for, for what I was bringing to the table and for the work I was doing. Again, getting uh, starting to get a little bit older and, and having a couple of children, that's, that's more important now than ever for me. And I didn't go searching for anything else. I wasn't searching for anything outside of the industry. I got a cold call from an ex-industry colleague <laughs> about an opportunity. And the more I heard about it, the more I was interested. And I just couldn't pass it up where I'm at in my life right now, a chance to, to be compensated fairly and have a, a, a positive path forward for career growth and financial growth. 
Yeah, no, it makes sense. I would say at the end of the day, that was probably a big reason why I finally left was that I, it wasn't worth it to me to work as hard as I worked and barely get by essentially and always be worried about the next paycheck. And so after leaving, I'm dramatically happier than you've, you've been doing this a couple months now. February 28th, but you know, I started, started February 28th and I left two weeks later for, for Belgium for 10 days. So I, uh, you know, I, I'm not out of beer. Uh, my passion hasn't changed for beer or for the industry. And I do get to continue to work with the industry in a different format. So actually, I think I could be more engaged now than I was previously because I have more time. I have more finances. Yeah. So I can do more traveling and experience more things and get get back engaged with trading shelf beers with different parts of the country. Yeah. And I think it doesn't matter as much, right? To like, I know I actually went to a brewery in San Antonio three weeks, no, it was two weeks ago. And I, I knew they don't make good beer. They never have. And I, I knew it wasn't going to be great beer, but it was near where my daughter was practicing soccer. And I drank the Pilsner and it sucked just like I knew it would. And it was the first time since I left the industry that I didn't care. It, it didn't bother me that it wasn't made well. It didn't bother me that they have good distribution. It just was a mediocre beer and I just enjoyed the afternoon and it was there to have a beer. I didn't care. But I was not able to do that for the last 10 years. So it's very, very rewarding. Yeah, you're in a much better place now, I would argue. Yeah. So I thought this was funny. I'm going to read it to you. On your Facebook page, somebody posts, Larry Bell, Aaron Sprintz, now Chimmy, three American beer legends who found their way out of the maze. You must write occasional dispatches about life on the outside. Rock on, my friend. Roger Baylor? <laughs> yeah, so Roger's an a industry legend here in southern Indiana, northern Kentucky. And he certainly, that was a satirical post by him, putting me with those names. He's an amazing person that's done a lot for the industry. And we've uh, encountered each other several times over over my career. He's been in it longer than I have. And he was good friends with Tim Eads, you know, Starlight. And so it's a small beer world, you know that. And so we were always kind of connected. And so he was, yeah, he was kind enough to write a satirical post on my I'm leaving <laughs> post that I shared. So have you given any occasional dispatches about life on the outside? Yeah, well, the the big thing is that I, every time I talk to a new person and they ask me how it is, I'm like, well, I'm still alive. I've been out <laughs> of the, the beer industry for X number of weeks and I'm still alive. There is life outside of the beer industry. And again, like you had said, I would argue that it's a better life. And you could even be more engaged with beer and more passionate about beer, but less emotional about it <laughs> being on the outside. Yeah, for sure. So here's a question I ask everybody. I'm going to ask you, uh, even though it sounds like I, I might know the answer, but how has working in this industry affected your relationship to alcohol? Pumar Bluntly, I definitely overindulged many, many times. And it, it it's also, I've lost 15 pounds as I left the industry, <laughs> to give you that. And so I'm just curious, how did it, you didn't start as a drinker, so there's part of that, but I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I spent, as, as many people did, the first, you know, my early 20s drinking way more than I should and making some not smart decisions. I've done that. I don't know that my drinking's changed that much because of the industry while I was in it or I was out, except for one thing. To be in this industry, you, you can't get DUI. You can't right. be arrested on an alcohol-related charge. So you learn to drink, most of us learn to drink responsibly and, and still be, still represent the logo that's on your shirt. And you're still doing that whether it's 2 a.m. or whether it's 10 a.m. Of course, there's exceptions, <laughs> but most of us learn to, to operate that way. And so it did impact me that way, but I think part of that was just maturing as well. 
to, to learning how to be more responsible with alcohol use. I've seen people in my life, friends, family members who cannot use alcohol responsibly or have not used alcohol responsibly. And there's been times in my career where I've had some guilt. Am I contributing mm. to that? You know, sometimes it's walking into bars at 7 a.m. and there's the same four guys every morning sitting there that have had one too many beers and shots. Yeah. And am I, am I contributing to that? But then there's also the times where you're doing this amazing tasting and you're pairing beer with food. And it's not about the consumption of alcohol or how much you can drink or getting buzzed off the alcohol. It's about finding that food pairing that changes everything, that the beer and food on our own are okay. But when you put them together, the skies open and the choir sings. Um, so it's, it's that entire gamut of experiences that impacted my relationship with alcohol. I will say I drink less alcohol now than I have for a very long time since before I started drinking. I like to say I drink often, but I don't drink a lot. Kind of limited. Yeah, I'm a big fan of sampling. I want to taste things. The only times I want to drink pints are if they're, you know, 2.8 or 3.2 British mild <laughs> or a good dunkle at, at four, four and a half percent. That's when I'm drinking a few pints, but I'm more likely to have a pint at lunch than I am to have a pint after 5 p.m. Oh, it's more sampling after 5 p.m.? No, I'm just not drinking. I'm oh, really? in bed by seven. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty early. Yeah. You got It's the early bird chick gets the worm, right? So you got to be up early the next morning. That's true. So tell me, don't tell everybody, I guess, what what are you doing now? Is there a way they can support you if they, if they retailers, they can go you're selling to or whatever? Yeah. So I'm, I'm working for a company called Rewards Network, and we manage corporate dining programs for the top loyalty programs in the country, many of the top loyalty programs. The top airlines, uh, United, Delta, Southwest, American, et cetera, and top hotel chains, Hilton, Marriott, IHG, Choice Hotels. And so it's my job to find eating and drinking establishments to feature to those loyalty members. And so I'm, I'm knocking on doors and, and working to get meetings with owners to talk about how we can bring them more full price paying diners that, that have a higher ticket average into their establishment and all the data that comes with that. So if, if a brewery owner is listening to this and they want to sign up with you, what do they do? Yeah, just, just give me a call, shoot me an email, Kelly will have all my information. And I'm more than happy to talk to you about what we offer. You know, leaving the craft beer industry after 22 and a half years, I wasn't just going to take a job. I didn't want to take a job, work for six months and, and go work somewhere else. I was looking for a retirement job <laughs> and I'm still in a honeymoon phase. However, I, I feel like I feel like I've found it. I really kicked the tires on this one before I came in. I have the inability to represent something I don't believe in. And I do believe in, in the products we offer and what we can do for small businesses. And that's, that's a great thing. It's a great place for me to be at is knowing that I can help small businesses. And that's a great place to leave off. So that's a positive. Uh, one, one final question. One of my favorites. Who do you think is more of an asshole, me or you? Oh, Lord. I don't know. We haven't drank together. <laughs> do you like Justin Bieber? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Okay, so you're not more of an asshole yet. I don't know. I think I would have to interview you to get to that point. But you've got cooler headsets than me. So I guess I'll say you're more of an asshole because your headset's cooler. I will make it my point in life to uh, let you know how much of an asshole I am. How about that? I like to be an asshole in private. So you let me know when we can drink together and we'll get crunk. All right. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I think you had a lot of insights that are important. Uh, the story was great. I always I like talking to anyone who's 
been at the helm of anything that went out of business. And so it's just super fascinating to me. But I think you offered a lot of help and a lot of, a lot of insight for everybody. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media.